0: The Making Sense of Life podcast, episode 19. According to J.K. Rowling, life is difficult and complicated and beyond anyone's total control. The humility to know that will enable you to survive its vicissitudes. The Making Sense of Life podcast will not only empower you to navigate through a fast-changing world, but also to grow in body, mind and spirit. Inward change precedes outer transformation. As the ancient Greek author Plutarch once said, what we achieve inwardly will change outer reality.
1: This podcast is sponsored by Logos Medical Legal. Sunil also works privately with senior leaders. Go to drsunil.com forward slash corporate to find out more.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Making Sense of Life podcast with me, Sunil Raheja, as we learn together about making sense of life in what is an increasingly challenging and complex world. Well, today's programme comes from the beautiful Oxfordshire countryside, and our guest today is a remarkable lady. Now, I know I say that about practically everybody I interview, but trust me, this lady truly is out of the ordinary. Welcome, Caroline. Thank you. Wonderful to be with you. So for those of you who don't know, Caroline Cox is going to be almost 80 years of age uh, next year. Is that right, Caroline? Yeah. I reach 80 next year. You reach 80 next year in 2017. Uh, She's the mother of two sons and a daughter, as well as a grandmother to 10 children. But she's no ordinary grandmother who likes to sit at home knitting, baking cakes and watching TV, although I'm sure you do some of those things sometimes don't have much time for them we don't have much time for those things because she's also a baroness who sits in the house of lords and is chief executive of humanitarian aid relief trust or hart for short uh, the charity that she founded in 2004 she's traveled on countless occasions to some of the most dangerous and hostile places in the world southern sudan mm-hmm. uganda nigeria east timor burma that's just to name just a few.
1: You've been to Nagora, Nagorno-Karabakh how many times? Well, Nagorno-Karabakh is a little bit of ancient Armenia. Suffered a horrendous war in the early 90s. Been there 83 times. 83 times,
0: wow. Uh, the, but the, as I said, the, the list goes on and on. She's defied dictators by crossing illegally into Burma, as well as walked through the remains of a massacred refugee camp in Sudan. Uh, she, and you can be overseas as much as how many months are you in a year?
1: Well, probably nearly half a year.
0: Any six months in a year. And uh, Baroness Cox is also no stranger to controversy. She's passionate about the rights of Muslim women and has expressed grave concerns about the the developments of Sharia law, Sharia courts in the UK. Many Muslim women here in the UK have thanked her and she's been publicly praised for speaking out on their behalf for the injustices that they've faced. But bizarrely, at the same time, she's also been accused by some of Islamophobia so welcome to the, the programme, Caroline. Thank you very much for having me. Now, before we talk about your work and your contribution, let's start by getting to know you. You were born as Caroline Anne McNeil-Love, the daughter of Robert McNeil-Love, an internationally renowned surgeon and co-author of the famous surgical textbook known as Bailey and Love. Actually, I've seen that textbook when I, when, when I was studying medicine as well. But let's start by telling us a little bit about your father, who in many ways has been inspiration to your life. You described him as a sort of medical Lawrence of Arabia.
1: Yes, well, my father served in the First World War in the Royal Army Medical Corps, and the first part took him to Gallipoli, which was a rough, uh, horrific situation. He described how he often had to do 40 amputations in one night, many nights, and they didn't have anaesthetics or painkillers, so he had to learn how to do an amputation very fast, and then they have to have hot tar uh, to seal the wound and to stop the the bleeding. So that was a very tough scene. And then later in the war, he was sent out to work in what was then called Mesopotamia. And he served there. And then some fascinating experiences. Uh, Just one, the fighting actually finished in that arena of war before the war formally finished. So there wasn't much for the military to do. And he taught himself Arabic, passed an exam. Then he was sent out by the army on many goodwill missions to very remote places. Usually they had not seen a European or white person before. And when they heard he was coming, little like it describes in the Bible when Jesus visited villages, they would put out the, the ill and the disabled people. And he could do quite a bit to help. On one occasion, he was one of these very remote areas woke up one morning and found himself surrounded by dying rats, bad news, bubonic plague. Well, he realized what it was. He had to isolate the area, himself inside, of course, never thought he would survive, did what he could to alleviate the suffering and to stop the spread of this horrific condition. Towards the end of an epidemic, an infectious disease becomes a little less virulent. You don't necessarily die from it. And he had an urgent message from the local sheikh, the head of the the village, saying, please would my father come and save the sheikh's favourite wife? Because she was down with the plague so he visited now she was not actually fatally ill and but in their culture if you're going to die you have to die in your coffin or they believe you won't go to heaven so this lady was flat out in her coffin my father tried to use all his beautiful arabic to talk her out of her coffin but she didn't dare get out and while she stayed there she was going to die psychologically so my father thought i've got to get this lady out of the coffin So he looked at his limited supply of medicines and found the perfect solution. He gave her a large dose of Epsom salts, which if people don't know it, is a laxative, which causes you to have a fairly quick uh, reaction. And all I would say is that lady was out of her coffin in 10 minutes and never looked back. Wonderful. And the sheikh was so grateful to my father for saving his favorite wife.
0: Wonderful. What a wonderful story there. So quite an inspiration to you. You're from a Christian family and your faith is core and essential foundation to all that you do. Um, You were confirmed in the Church of England at the age of 11 and you recall
1: the verse that was given to you. I think that's fascinating. Tell us about that. Yes, well, at the Confirmation Service, the bishop gave us a verse and the verse given to us was Joshua, the book of Joshua, chapter one, verse nine. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of a good courage. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. For I, the Lord, your God, am with you wherever you go. I must admit, I am often afraid. I am often dismayed. But I do try to hang on to that, that text, which I remember so many years later. Wow. And because you're right, having danger has been such a part
0: of your life, both in the form of psychological uh, and physical intimidation. I mean, how do you handle fear? Do you I mean, as you said, you do get fearful at times.
1: Yes, I get very afraid in all sorts of situations. I'm basically a very shy person, so I'm very nervous before I speak anywhere. But in the kind of work I now do, and have done for many years, we do go into quite a lot of quite dangerous areas, including active war zones. And I do get what I call my fit of faithless, fearful dread. I shrink back. I don't want to go. Life here seems very safe and very comfortable. And I remember I had one of those fits of faithless, fearful dread uh, many, many years ago. I still have them now. But on this particular occasion, our kids were still young. We we're still together with a family. And this fit of faithless, fearful dread hit on Saturday afternoon. Well, you don't share the gloom and the doom, so I kept it to myself. Anyways, before we were going to fly out to the little Armenian enclave called Nagorno-Karabakh that no one's heard of but this horrific war was going on there We used to fly in by helicopter what about this? it's a little bit of ancient Armenia that yeah. Stalin stuck inside Azerbaijan with his divide and rule tactics and in the early 90s Azerbaijan wanted the Armenians out of this little land and they didn't want to go um, it's got some of the most Historic churches in the world, fourth century churches, the first nation in the world to become Christian. Mm. But also, they'd in already. The fourth century. Fourth century. And they'd already lost the Armenians, all of Western Armenia, in the genocide perpetrated by Turkey last year when all of Western Armenia was annexed by Turkey, is now Eastern Turkey. So they lost too much already. So they resisted. And it was like David against Goliath. Hundred and fifty thousand against seven million Azerbaijan, hunting rifles against tanks. It was the most high intensity conflict of the early nineties. I used to count four hundred grad missiles a day pounding down on the little capital city. It was hell on earth. So I've been there, I say, eighty three times now. There is now a precarious ceasefire, but this was war. And we used to flying in helicopters under fire. So I had my fit of faithless, fearful dread. I didn't want to go. But The next morning I went to church and the gospel was that passage, he who is not prepared to leave husband, wife, brothers, sisters for my sake is not worthy to be my disciple. And there was an extra part, but he who does leave husband, wife, brothers, sisters for my sake will find new brothers and sisters even under persecution. And I just know that again and again, when I have crossed that frontier of fear and gone to be with people on front lines of faith and freedom in some of the dark parts of the world. I shall meet the most amazing people and have the most humbling experiences and return receiving more than I can ever give. So it is important to cross that frontier of fear.
0: And you've had to do that again and again, because you said you've you, you've, struggled with depression yourself as well, and a number of our listeners um, also have, have have had that, as, as I have myself. Um, so one of the ways you you deal with that is you go to these very forsaken, forgotten places and, and meet people and, and encourage them and receive that
1: blessing back. Uh, but how do you, do you keep going? Yourself? Well, I do have depression. I've had it for quite a few years and it's that horrible black feeling which hits in the morning and you feel really down. People sometimes say to me, well, at your age, so I'm 80 next year, mm-hmm. how do you have the energy to keep going? And my answer is, well... It's the pain gives me the passion and the passion gives me the energy. And I think that's what keeps me going. That's amazing. So the pain gives you the passion
0: and, and the passion then gives you the energy. And it's in a sense, it's, so it's dealing with that dark side, as it, as it were, that you as it were, becomes the fuel to, to keep going. And I suppose when you're in the pain, realizing that this too will pass,
1: this will move on. I'm not sure it moves on for me at the moment as far as my personal depression is concerned, right. but it does give that passion and that does give the energy. And there is a, the comforting side that one does have a little bit of a feeling of a privilege of making a difference for some of the people, the forgotten peoples in the forgotten lands. Yes. And that's, that's a comfort.
0: Yes. So it's if you like the thorn in your flesh, but, that it, but in your weakness and yet seeing God work powerfully and miraculously even through your
1: own weakness. <laughs> And the huge privilege of being with people of living faith who are really suffering persecution. Yes. And when they suffer, really, uh, in the countries we work, such as Nigeria, Sudan, Burma, and so on, they have such a living, radiant faith. And when they worship, they worship often with much more joy, real joy, than many a comfortable church in the West. And I think that speaks to me and says well faith must be real if they can have such joy when they know they could be dead tomorrow may have lost loved ones already in massacres then god must be a very present help in trouble as it says in the bible
0: and we're going to to learn a little bit more about uh, about some of those stories and those life experiences but let's let's come back to you caroline and just your own your own life story because i think it'll be such an encouragement to to many of our listeners so you were educated at channing school in highgate north london And you decided to become a state-registered
1: nurse, much to the chagrin of your um, teachers. Oh, the school was horrified. I mean, I was head of school for some strange reason. And, of course, you're meant, if you can, to go on to prestige universities like Oxford or Cambridge. It's good for the school to have scholarship boards. And I was meant to be going on to study English. Well, when I said I was going to do nursing, the teachers were horrified what are you doing nursing for? And I must say, I never, ever regret that choice. Nursing is a wonderful profession. Nursing education is a wonderful basis for life. You deal with everything from birth to death, from physical illness to psychological problems and fear. And I would recommend nursing to anyone who has a choice of options. And two of your children have done nursing as well, two of my children. My oldest son is a medical officer, has been a medical officer in the Royal Navy. He did medicine. My second son, Jonathan, wanted to work in the mission field. And he said the best thing to take out into developing countries in the mission field is actually nursing, because it's primary health care. You're out right, where the people are, alongside them. And my daughter also qualified as a nurse and is still nursing. And... Linking that with mediation and conciliation work, wonderful profession. Fascinating.
0: So you started as a, as a staff nurse at Edgeware General Hospital from 1960, uh, but just before that, you married Dr. Murray Newell Cox in 1959, and re, you remained married to him until his, until he uh, he died in 1997. Um, tell us about uh, about Murray. Yeah.
1: Well, Murray was an amazing man. Uh, professionally, he started life as a general practitioner. And he loved general practice, but he was increasingly frustrated because so many patients who came to see him didn't really have a bad knee. Well, the reason they came wasn't really stomach ache. but towards the end of a 10-minute consultation, out would come some psychological problem because there wasn't time to deal with it with a busy waiting room. So Murray qualified or studied to become a psychiatrist part-time, got his qualifications in psychiatry, and then went originally into a forensic psychiatry, working in the prison service, and then took on a very fascinating and challenging role at Broadmoor, which is the hospital. Uh, it is a hospital rather than a prison for um, patients who've had problems with uh, violent behavior and many committed crimes. So it is a hospital for offenders. And when he was there, he wanted to introduce psychotherapy because it was already well-staffed with medication and so on. So quite a challenge, a very orthodox um, hospital, psychiatric hospital, introducing psychotherapy. But he did, and it was very well received by the patients and by the staff. And then he had a very original idea. He loved Shakespeare. He would know Shakespeare off by heart. He could quote Shakespeare well nonstop, Really loved it and particularly was moved and motivated by the famous tragedies. So he then had the original idea of bringing down some of the most famous Shakespearean actors like Mark Rylance down to Broadmoor, who would perform some of the aspects of those major Shakespeare tragedies uh, to patients and staff. And of course, what they were doing was acting the kind of violent and challenging behaviour that many of the patients had suffered from. And so it acted out what they had suffered in a way they could relate to without being too personal. And then the actors and the patients and staff would get together and have seminar discussions. And mutually that was found to be very useful. And he eventually wrote a book about this called Shakespeare Comes to Broadmoor. Highly original. I think anyone other than Murray would <laughs> bring, bring those things together. You
0: would have never have <laughs> yeah. sort of thought of that. And yet it, 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 it got a lot of acclaim. And uh, I saw his, his obituary in the independent newspaper in August 1997. It describes him. I'll just read from that. He says, he listened, took patience at their word and really noticed what they said, not just in words, but in emphasis, expression and gesture. Perhaps the most distinctive thing about him was his respect for the dignity of patients who'd been doubly written off as mad and bad. He risked disappointment again and again. Had said once about his Broadmoor work, his Broadmoor work, that there is nobody I can't have hope about. It was if that was the simplicity. The complexity of what was brought to bear on his therapy was dazzling. He was superbly well read in his own field and many others. Had intensive friendships with a wide range of people. Loved music and was a Christian who knew, as you said, much of Shakespeare, but also much of the Bible by heart and had a profound and well-considered theology that the most striking of his therapeutic response resources was Shakespeare. Uh, not that he just used Shakespeare, rather, as you said, Caroline, he re- re- reveled in those dramas, knew large parts of them by heart, featured on them and savoured their paraclinical precision about the sorts of extremes of evil, madness, horror and death with, with which he dealt daily. He was Honorary Research Fellow of the Shakespeare Institute in Birmingham University and from 1999 an advisor to the Royal Shakespeare Company. So, in a sense, in many ways dealing with some quite dreadful situations. And it's funny, well, funny, I don't know if funny is the right word, but in in many ways, a preparation for your own life and the things that you you were going to deal with. But uh, let's come back to you, though, as well, Caroline. So in November 1959, you had your first child. Um, But a few months later, you contracted TB and were in hospital with
1: your baby for six months. And that really changed the course of direction of your life, didn't it? Yes, i must say, Robin... Our first yes. was not in hospital with me. Okay. That was one of the worst things, being separated from him at wow. age 10 months. And I was in Ward L3 of Edgware General Hospital. And I'll never forget the day they told me that I was going to be in there for six months. And I looked around this small side ward and thought, I'm going to see nothing else for, this, for six months. Yeah, no TV, no internet. No. Well, there was TV okay. and that was a help. Yeah. But I taught myself Italian. It's a good place to learn a language. Okay. But... For me, I think it was probably the best nursing education anyone could ever have. I only wish I'd had it before I'd ever touched a patient. I'd have been a much nicer nurse. What do you mean by that? But because yeah. if you're a patient, you know what makes a good nurse. You can tell within minutes if someone coming into the room to look after you is a good nurse or not a good nurse. Same applies to doctors who yes. you know if they're as sympathetic and wise uh, clinician, or if they're just yeah. um, functional and impersonal. Just doing the job. And so i had been a much nicer nurse if I'd had that six months <laughs> as yeah. a hospital before I'd actually touched a patient. Because you talked about the, about treating the illness
0: in the person, or the person with the illness, don't, don't you?
1: And I think that also gave me a motivation to study sociology or social sciences, um, which was lacking very largely then in both medical and nursing education, it, that was always very clinical, very focused. And to see the patient as a person and in a cultural context, which may affect the way people respond to illness and suffering, seemed to me to be very important. So I then thought, OK, when I come out, I was blessed the three children. While well, I was busy having the three children, they were little. I was at home as mum, which is important. But I did my degrees as a part-time evening student. Um, London University allowed to do evening student studies, part-time degree at what was in the Regent Street Polytechnic. And then my first book I wrote with a colleague was actually a sociology of medical practice, helping medical nursing practitioners understand seeing patients as people and people in social context and in cultural context and to relate to them therefore as a whole person, not just as, I'm ashamed to say, used to talk about when I was nursing, the coronary in the Ford fourth bed on the left.
0: It's very easy to do in the medical profession, very easy to do that, yes. But you graduated with a first-class honours degree in 1967, as you said, with sociology. You wrote this textbook, and then you went on to have two more children, as well as completing your master's in sociology, at which time you were offered the post of being a lecturer at the Polytechnic of North London. And your life changed quite dramatically. In many ways, just reading what happened was very much a crucible of fire for you. Uh, you, you did. I mean, your life has had so many twists and turns, and this was
1: quite a dramatic turn. Well, I found myself in a department of academic colleagues. Uh, there were twenty academic colleagues in that department, but sixteen of them were Communist Party, or even more radically left-wing than the Communist Party. It's about nineteen seventy-one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. the early nineteen seventies. Yeah, and. Their definition of higher education was not mine. Mine is freedom to pursue the truth within the rules of academic rigor. Theirs was hard-line indoctrination, vicious, intransigent. And for me, it was a real shock. I'd never encountered this before. But also, it was against everything I stood for as a Christian. As a Christian, you stand, or try to stand, for truth and love. What was going on around me was untruth, hardline and this is in London we're talking about. We're talking Polytechnic of North London here, exactly. Yeah. And it wasn't only going on the Polytechnic of North London. I knew it was happening elsewhere too. Why well, I became aware of that, so it was a violation of the principle of genuine academic rigor. It was hardline indoctrination, and it was brutal. It was brutal. It was ruthless, and so it was the opposite of truth and love. And I tried to hold the line for what I believed in. And it was very, very tough. Wow. I can give you just one example, if I may. Yes. Um, I remember we used to have regular, or the or Polytechnic used to have regular occupations when buildings were taken over by rebelling staff and students the staff were at least as rebellious as the students were and often led these occupations and the occupations were violent there'd be violent picket lines you'd have to go through very tough picket lines and then the building would be taken over and they would set up an occupation collective which decreed what might be taught that day which had nothing to do with what students had paid to study and staff were paid to study and I remember on one occasion One of these occupations, and there were many of them, but this, I think, was for me the eye-opener, been there fairly early on. And this occupation was building up, and it was premised on what I knew were lies. There was going to be the appointment of the new director of the Polytechnic, and they didn't want him. He wasn't one of them. So they labelled him racist, and fascist. And then the chanting of the picket lines and all the demonstrations, racist, fascist, racist, fascist. And I thought, hey, that's not true. This guy, he fought against Nazi Germany in the Battle of Arnhem. He was a paratrooper. So many of his friends killed in the parachute battle at Arnhem. So he risked his life fighting fascism. As far as the racist allegation, he'd served in what was then northern Rhodesia, and he'd done so much to help black students, he got into trouble with the regime there. So he wasn't a racist. And to have this violent demonstration based on these two lies, I couldn't stomach. So I was determined to go on teaching. So I arrived one day, went through the picket lines, pretty aggressive, and I had a group of students who were desperate to be taught. Now... It was not agreed by the Occupation Collective. What they decreed for the day was a blackboard up there, visit by what we call the Greenham Common Women, who were pacifists and totally against NATO and all the things to do with defence. And then there was Marxism in the Third World. There was Marxism in the family. And I was teaching criminology at the time, so I met my group of students who were desperate for a class. So I thought we'd probably be broken up. They've got vigilantes who come round and break up unauthorized classes but we'll go for it so we went in the seminar room i sat myself across the door started teaching criminology 25 minutes into the class a group of these vigilantes came they shouted through the door i opened it a quarter of an inch what's going on in here i said this is a, a bsc sociology criminology seminar it's not alternative education it's what i'm paid to teach what these students are paid to study and I shall continue teaching. If you want to stop us, you're going to have to push me off my chair. If I'm hurt, I'll see you're personally liable. I banged the door shut as loud as I could as a gesture of defiance. And they shouted through, righto, we'll be back, dearie. Well, I had a moral victory. We got our hour of teaching in. Then they came back. Okay, they pushed me off my chair. They subjected those students to half an hour virulent verbal abuse. And just because they wanted a class and what they paid for.
0: Hmm.
1: The next year, however, it has a happier ending. The student who led the assault came to see me and said, Caroline, I feel a little embarrassed asking you this. Would you mind being my academic tutor this year? Amazing. He said, Tony, I'd love it. I love living dangerously. (laughs) But what he later said was very revealing. Now, he was an older student, nearly 30. He'd worked below decks on oil tanker merchant ships, and that's not a soft life. But he said to me one day, do you know, Caroline, it takes a tremendous amount of courage to ask to have you as a tutor. Most of the final year students would like to have you as a tutor, but they know if they ask to have you as a tutor, the other staff will fail their exams. So they dare not. And it's so hard to imagine that you're talking all again just about this is London, Polytechnic of North London in the early 1970s. And it it wasn't only happening there. I know from colleagues and other, particularly what you might say, the kind of soft underbelly of higher education yeah. in subjects like the social sciences social work teacher education media studies it didn't affect so much the you know the hard edge subjects like the sciences yeah. and mathematics it was in that much more vulnerable parts of higher education, and it was happening in very down influential the parts of yeah, and right. which sowed the seeds for the future: media studies, uh, social work training, yes. etc. And it was real hardline Marxist yes. Leninist indoctrination. And just, just to emphasise that, because you also mentioned
0: about how um, a colleague came to, to want to talk to you in private, and, and what and what she said to you.
1: Oh, Rosie! I mean, we worked together studying our master's degree together as, again, as a part-time student. And one day Rosie called me up and said, Caroline, I must come to see you. I said, well, of course, Rosie, we're friends. She was married to one of the lecturers in my department. And she came in floods of tears. And Kevin was her husband. And Kevin had just joined the Communist Party. And they told him that either his wife, Rosie, had to become a communist or he had to divorce her. Well, she came desperate, but she would not divorce him I'm sorry, she would not become a member of the Communist Party. So he divorced her and she was desolate. And I must say, he walked around looking like a cadaver. He was torn apart. But the Communist Party demanded it. The Iron Law of Lenin demanded it and he divorced her. It was that powerful. Why
0: do you think people like this could become so, what's the word, indoctrinated, so sort of obsessed with with communism or with this?
1: Why do you think that happened? Well, I've observed it, so I can by my observation. But I think, you know, in the physical world, nature abhors a vacuum. The same applies, I think, in the spiritual and psychological worlds. And England had been subjected in the 1960s to the extreme relativism of anything goes, flower power, extreme hippie. Yeah, the 1960s, sex, drugs, rock and roll. Sex, drugs, anything went. Hmm. And I think that undermined a lot of the value foundations. And into that kind of vacuum came hardline Marxism-Leninism. And totalitarianism is totalitarianism. It requires complete subjugation. But you could see people almost lost their souls. That when they became members of the Communist Party, like poor Kevin, they had to give everything to totalitarianism. And it took over their lives.
0: And it's probably saying so about the emptiness that they had within, that they had to grasp and totally embrace that um, but in a sense, it's such a huge cost.
1: It was a huge cost then, personally, and a huge cost to us as a society, and we're still reaping the whirlwind. Yes, and again, this is all preparation
0: for your for, for, for your future as well. Um, those harrowing experiences became the subject of of your book, Rape of Reason, uh, which you authored with two other lecturers from the Polytechnic of North London in 1975. And this, it's amazing how I would say how providence, how God works, really, because that was picked up by Bernard Levin an influential columnist col- columnist for the um, the Times newspaper and he described it as the most important book for the future of democracy that he had read in 10 years and he devoted all three of his columns in the Times newspaper for that week that was September to October 1975 And a chain of events then ensued from there to tell us about that chain of events which again you could never have imagined you would never have thought it would go that direction
1: well, Bernard Levin was my lifeline because I wrote the book and you don't write and run. So I was going back to the department to face the music and very nervous. But on the morning before the book was published, the phone went, I was getting kids ready for school, but anyhow, yeah, Bernard Levin was on the phone and he said, i just read your book, as you said, and I think it's the most important book for the future of democracy. I'm going to cover it in tomorrow's times. A complete lifeline for me And then he said, I'm going to devote my remaining two articles this week to discussing it. It's such an important book. He'd only before ever written a trilogy, three articles on one theme, for Mozart and Solzhenitsyn. It's a really good company. Yes. But that, of course, got the book known and I think got me known. And I think it was on that basis that Margaret Thatcher, then prime minister, uh, suggested I might become a life peer. Uh, as a kind of academic freedom fighter. Yeah,
0: and I think she 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 she, she lifted the book up and said to um, I think was it in the cabinet or something that everybody should needs to read needs to read this book.
1: Yeah, yes. Well, she was she got the message very yeah. very clearly. So you say so
0: that in a sense. So you you were a nurse, as you said, uh, and a social scientist by intention,
1: and a baroness by astonishment. That's so true, I mean, I wasn't into politics. In fact, I was so much not into politics, I was actually the first Baroness I'd ever met. You become a Baroness being appointed to the House of Lords, and as I wasn't into politics, but you suddenly, God gives you this extraordinary gift, and you think, well, what a privilege Mm. to be able to speak among the Houses of the British Parliament. How do I use this privilege, being able to speak in the House of Lords? And I think the message came very clearly, to be able to speak in Parliament is a wonderful place to be a voice for those who do not have a voice, a voice for the voiceless. And I've tried to use that arena for that purpose. That's right. And you've, you know, you set up this organisation, Heart, uh,
0: as well, um, and which we're going to come to. You, gave, you, you kindly gave me a copy of the book, The Rape of Reason, which is now out of print, unfortunately. But um, I loved what you wrote um, inside the book when you gave it to me. You said, we preserve... You said to to me that you're praying for us as a nation, that we preserve our cultural, spiritual and political heritage and pass it on undiminished to our children. Because you very much believe and are convinced that our cultural, spiritual and political heritage is at risk.
1: I do. I mean, it was certainly at risk from communism. Yes. In those days. And of course, we need to remember that in so much the world was subjugated to communism. A lot of my work brought me face-to-face in direct contact with the realities of communist totalitarianism in Poland and Romania, etc. So I've seen and felt totalitarianism in its full tragic horror, what it does to people. Now in the UK, um, when the Soviet Union imploded, I thought I could relax. (laughs) And I was such a relief. It didn't last very long because I then started doing a lot of the humanitarian aid work. Before Hart was born, Hart grew from this. But I was working in countries like Indonesia, where Indonesia is still, I may say, a very um, tolerant nation, one of the biggest Muslim nation in the world, and has a great record for religious tolerance. And it was under attack in the 90s. Parts of it, particularly down in the Spice Islands and Sulawesi, from Laskar Jihad, which is like ISIS or Boko Haram, and thousands of jihad warriors were down there. And I'd been down there in the Malakas or the Spice Islands and Sulawesi when that jihad was going on. i also been in Sudan when the Islamist mm-hmm. uh, president... Uh, declared jihad against all who opposed him. And that was a horrendous war from 89 to 2005. Two million died, four million displaced, thousands taken into slavery. Nigeria, of course, northern Nigeria, the Sharia states, Christians have suffered a lot of persecution there. And as I did this work, I got worried. And I felt it was like a cloud a little bigger than a man's hand on the horizon. But I said to one of my co-authors from Rape of Reason, I think there's something here we need to study. I think there's another form of totalitarianism that is serious. So we then studied Islam. And the more we studied and the more I saw what was working out around the world, the more I realized this is something we need to take seriously, to pray about And I and my colleague John Marks wrote a book on Islam, which deals with the basic um, values, the basic epistemology, the theory of knowledge, its theology. And what was very interesting, when we did that academic study, we found in many ways the sort of orthodox Islam uh, fits right within the framework of totalitarianism. I'm not talking about the vast majority of the world's 1.2 billion Muslims as such, so many of whom are gracious, hospitable, lovely people. I'm talking about the ideology of political Islam, strategic Islam. And I think that is And that's something... producing the effects that we're seeing around the world, yeah. Yes, and that is, I mean, coming very much now into focus, the world's focus, and also growing in this country in many ways. Yeah, and let's talk about that, because you're very passionate about this issue about Sharia
0: courts um, in the UK. Can you explain to us a little bit about what Sharia courts are and why you're so concerned about them?
1: Well, I must say that I'm a fundamental believer in freedom of religion and belief. I think everyone has that fundamental right. It's a universal declaration of human rights and we all have that fundamental right. There are many aspects of Sharia law which are totally you know, uncontroversial. Uh, to fast in Ramadan well, Christians fast in Lent. To pray five times a day, well, that's probably better than I do as a Christian. So there are aspects of Sharia law which, you know, I think uh, we should respect. But there are aspects of Sharia law and they're being applied in Sharia councils or courts in this country that are utterly incompatible. In what sort of way? With the fundamental laws and values of our country and particularly the Gender discrimination. We in this country are meant to be against gender discrimination, promoting equality. But just for example, under Sharia law, the man can divorce his wife just by saying, I divorce you three times. And there's no comeback on that. The wife has to go through all sorts of conditions, often has to pay, and may not, not be able to. One lady who came to me in tears, her husband had sent a divorce through the post. And the imam said, she was indeed divorced. And she was in tears. She said, I feel betrayed by democracy. I didn't think something like that could happen in England. I can get divorced by post. She was desperate. Um, another aspect that's really against our fundamental laws is polygamy. In Sharia law, a man can have, legitimately, according to Sharia law, four wives. Well, in Britain, we don't allow bigamy, but we allow polygamy. And some of the Muslim women whom I speak to, And one very brave Muslim lady who's written a report and put her name on it, Habiba Jan, and it's available, she described, for example, uh, the situation for 50 Muslim women in the West Midlands and how some of them were married into polygamous marriages without even being aware there was another wife. They also didn't realise that if they were married with an Islamic marriage that didn't bring with it a legally registered marriage, when they were divorced, they'd have no rights whatever they'd be left completely destitute they might lose their children under Sharia law, and the fact that domestic violence is allowed so-called chastisement, is allowed under Sharia law. Well, that goes against our rules, against domestic violence. And the Muslim women are really suffering in this country. And yet very few people talk about this. Well, I know they do, and I think it's really important we do talk about it, because Muslim women in this country are suffering in ways which make the suffragettes turn in their graves. So one aspect of that original calling to be a voice for the voiceless, I think, needs to be played out in this country. I will still speak out for the suffering, the persecution of people suffering oppression in other countries, Christians in places like Nigeria, um, Sudan, but also Muslims in places like Burma or in Blue Nile in Sudan or Buddhists in Mm -hmm. Shan State in Mm -hmm. Burma. I'll speak for the oppressed with passion in places where we work around the world, but I can't ignore the suffering of people in this country. So what are you doing about that in in this country? As one way of trying to raise awareness, because, as you say, people don't like talking about it, they're terrified being labelled Islamophobic. As you yourself have been as well. Well, there was a rather nice article in The Telegraph not so long ago, which was headed, I didn't write it, the, the Telegraph um, writer wrote it. They'd love to call me Islamophobic, but I love Muslim women. Yes. And I do love the Muslim women, and a lot of them support my work. So in an effort to raise awareness of what is unacceptable in the operation of these Sharia courts and councils, is the introduction by myself of a private member's bill into Parliament, which deals with the aspect of gender discrimination causing this suffering for Muslim women in this country and children, but also the threat to the fundamental principle of democracy, of one law for all. Last year in the UK, we celebrated 800 years of Magna Carta, well, with this parallel legal system, we're at risk of going back to pre-Magna Carta days. It's really serious. And we do need to speak up. See, on behalf of the Muslim women who are suffering in ways that are totally unacceptable, and on behalf of, our, as we said earlier, our spiritual, cultural and political heritage, we have an obligation to pass that on undiminished. I'll tell you just one little story of the kind of suffering. There's a friend of mine who's a gynaecologist... And a Muslim gentleman came, aged 63, with his Muslim wife, aged 23. And the husband said he wanted, my colleague, to perform repair of hymen operation on his 23-year-old wife, which actually is an illegal operation in this country. So my colleague said, well, why do you want me to do it? It's an illegal operation. To which this 63-year-old man said, well, I want to take my wife back to Pakistan, marry her off to somebody else. He will then get a visa to come to Britain so she can bring him back to Britain with a visa and I get £10,000 for this, which is very helpful because I'm unemployed. Think of the plight of that 23-year-old it's girl. Tragic. You know, he, her husband wanted a repair of in an illegal operation, so she could get married again to someone in Pakistan, so he could get a visa to come back to this country. I think
0: what's so tragic is that we then don't want to talk about these things because we say that we're upsetting people's culture. and yet it's, And by saying that, we're ignoring the human
1: cost Absolutely. Well, there, last year there was a, an organi- very is a very good organisation called Kama Nirvana. And they established a day of memory for the victims of so called honour based killings. Now, obviously, the victims of the killings couldn't be there. But quite a few of the survivors of honour based abuse and violence were there. And I, I know some of these very brave ladies who were prepared to come and speak out. And I was asked to speak at this conference. And so many of the women who spoke said well, when they went to the police for help for this so-called honour-based violence, uh, the police wouldn't intervene for in case they upset cultural sensitivities. So I asked a question, the House of Lords the next day, and the day of memory, the date was chosen, which would have been the 29th birthday of Shafilia Ahmed, who in this country was suffocated by her parents in front of her siblings for bringing shame on the family, for adopting a Western lifestyle. So it would have been her birthday. That was the day. But I've quoted this in the House of Lords. And I said to the minister in question time, many of the women there said that when they went to the police for help, they didn't get the help they needed because the police were afraid of upsetting cultural sensitivities. What was Her Majesty's government going to do to ensure that cultural sensitivities or multiculturalism or political correctness don't prevent the police from protecting vulnerable citizens or the law of the land? And what do they say to you? Well, you get an assurance, but I wait to see the reality. Yes,
0: I think the reality, as you said, is that we'd much rather hide behind bland statements rather than actually, as it were, grasp the nettle. Because it's, it's to our...
1: Um, yeah, we've got to, as Christians, we've got to speak the truth in
0: love. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. And, and, and you said that, that it's an all-party members' bill that,
1: that, that you're sponsoring. It, it, well, yeah. It's my private members' bill, but it has yeah. support from all uh, parts of the House. I mean, wonderful top members of the House of Lords. On the Conservative side, Lord Mackay of Clashfern, a Christian, former Chancellor... On the Liberal Democrat side, Alex Carlyle, QC, probably one of the leading human rights lawyers in the country. Lord de who heads up uh, the Liberal Democrat. He's a Hindu. Lord Singer Wimbledon, of course, is a Sikh. He supports the bill. Um, on the Labour side, two women who've got particular interest in women's issues and children's vulnerability. And on the crossbenches, that's the independence where I am, strong support, including... Baroness Flather from India, and Lord Green of Deddington, former British ambassador to Saudi Arabia and Syria. I mean, he's got such support, and a lot of support from MPs in the House of Commons, including Fiona Bruce MP, who is willing to sponsor it in the House of Commons, who's one of our leading Christian MPs. So I think if we speak up and speak out, we have to speak the truth in love.
0: This is wonderful to hear, and and it's so important. Um, We're going to... You've got so many fascinating things to say, uh, Caroline. I think we're, we're going to split this into two podcasts and we're going to finish shortly on this one, but we're, we're going to talk about the overseas work of, of Heart on, on our second podcast. But what I want to ask you a little bit, again, you've very, very, very been very brave as well to tell us about your own struggle with depression and your own sort of uh, fearful and dread that, that, you, that you struggle with. Where do you think we find the courage? Where do you find the courage to do all this?
1: Well, I think it goes back to... The passion you see in justice, I was given the privilege. Privilege brings responsibility, and the responsibility for me relates to trying to address issues of injustice, of untruth, of unlove, of hatred. Mm. As I experienced it for nine years at the Projecting of North yes. London, which was a tough, tough, incredibly really tough, crucible yeah. training ground. But now, when I see people suffering victims of oppression yeah. and persecution. Uh, abroad or here in this country goes back to the passion and and not let you rest
0: yeah and you very much as, as, as it were found your purpose in life you know one of the things we were talking about is that people are living longer and people can obviously anything can happen in life and there are still you know terrible diseases as we get older into our 70s 80s 90s dementia for example and things like that but by and large, I think we can expect to live with greater health, greater vitality than maybe our parents and grandparents. What do you, what would you say to people as they face retirement, and as they look ahead to their 50s and 60s and beyond? What would you say to them about their, especially in a world that's full of so much suffering? Maybe they don't need, to, they, they're not going to do what you've done, but maybe, they, but there are certainly areas where they can make a difference.
1: I think I'd say two things. I mean, one is now from my great age, looking back, um, I think when you're younger, um, you look ahead and you think, well, maybe reach 50, 60, that's retirement age. But we need to remember that with a normal life expectancy nowadays, the majority of people reach 50, you've got at least a quarter of a century of active life ahead of you. So how are you going to use that gift from God? Mm. And one of the sayings that i hang on to and i think it's i find it very helpful and i find often talking to students or other people they seem to find it helpful too it's it's a well-known saying but i think it's very profound god doesn't want our ability he wants our availability not our ability but our availability and yeah. if we're available to god and just say god how do you want to use me then he will give us the ability to do what he wants us to do and so it's that availability to god and 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 being, willing and I think so often we
0: say I haven't got anything to give. I haven't. I can't do very much. But it's being available, saying, "Okay, use me in all my weakness and and failings."
1: And just, you know, I may feel, you know, as, as I do, I'm basically very shy. We say God. It's amazing chose. to hear you say that. It's absolutely true. God shows the weak and the foolish. He found His right number in me. But if if God opened, I think going through life. If God opens a door in front of me, and it wasn't my ambition, I didn't manipulate it or contrive it, but this door opened, and some have been extraordinary doors, but you go through that door, sometimes with fear, but then cross that frontier of fear, go through that open door, God can open up new horizons for you. You'll meet people you would never have met before. New opportunities open up that weren't there before you went through that door. So at any stage in life, I think it's a question of trying to be available for God and being willing to go through the doors he opens.
0: And I suppose courage is not the absence of fear, courage is moving forward, still afraid. And then that gives you opportunity to see God work and to see things happen that you might never have dreamed possible, mm. as your life very much shows. Yeah,
1: And to meet the most amazing people one would never have met, yeah. but hadn't gone through those doors. Now, there'd be different doors for everybody. Mine have taken me to strange places, wonderful places, frightening places very often, uh, around different parts around the world, but also to challenges in this country, which I wasn't looking for, <laughs> but there. And I think it's a privilege a responsibility to try to address them but there'll be different doors for different people but it's a question of being available to go through those doors for some it may well be on one's own doorstep yes but that availability then god will give the ability to do what he wants us to do in his context in his time well, Caroline, Baroness Cox, uh,
0: thank you for an amazing conversation. You've whetted our appetite for uh, podcast number two that will will come up soon. But thank you so much. Remember, it's our availability that's more important and God will use our availability in, in his own purposes. Thank you very much. And uh, we look forward to, to, to carrying on more and talking about the work of heart uh, that you're very passionate about as well.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. If you've enjoyed today's conversation you can get all the show notes
0: for this episode from drsunil.com. and could you do us a favor head over to itunes to rate the program this is by far the best way to get this content into the hands of those who need it most also do you think about who you could pass details of the podcast on to don't forget to check out the blog for more great content that's drsunil.com, helping you to make sense of life in a challenging and complex world. Until next time, goodbye for now.